Welcome to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on News Radio 680 WPTF. And this show is made possible through the support of Transitions Life Care. And you can find more about them at transitionslifecare.org. I am Jason Kong. A good Saturday evening to you. The usual cast of, uh, of learned individuals is here. We've got Cooper Linton with Transitions Life Care. Cooper, how are you? I am doing well this evening. Thank you, Jason. Very good. And the lovely Nicole Bruno with Transitions Transitions Guiding Lights. Good evening to you, Nicole. So glad to be here. Very good. Now, uh, Halloween just passed, and uh, I got to say, my uh, my costume was inspired by you. I went as a cup of decaf coffee, coffee, which is decaf. I know, I'm high test. I know that's what, it's, it's scary for you. It's scary for you. It was you. scary for me, yeah. And have a trip to New Orleans under our belts as well. Very so good. So we had quite a busy week. Cooper was with me. We were talking about expanding our program nationally. So that was lots of good fun. Big time, man. Great, great stuff to hear. Well, uh, Cooper, we're gonna get onto a topic here. We may be uh, we're, we're in the month of November. I know October was breast cancer. Cancer Awareness Month. So, uh, but for us, you know, breast cancer awareness goes the whole year. We don't we don't just limit it to one month. Well, that's kind of the beauty of the topics of this show. Uh, people don't uh, get sick one month out of the year. Right. Uh, they become caregivers when they become caregivers. They face health challenges when they face them. And most of us don't get to pick when those happen. Those things just happen, and we have to figure out how to find resources to 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 address them. Uh, this evening, we're actually uh, very privileged to have Dr. Trevor Jolly from uh, the UNC School of Medicine, UNC Health System, and we wanted to talk about breast cancer. Uh, I think sometimes we think we know everything we need to know about it. We've heard about it in the news. Um, many folks have participated in the walks. They've raised money, and most of us know somebody who has dealt with this disease, but do we actually know it the way we think we do? So, Dr. Jolly, we're glad that you're on the show tonight. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, what I would say is that uh, I think the most common uh, misconception about breast cancer is that it's really not one disease. Um, so we call it... It's not just breast cancer? Nope, it's not just breast cancer. We don't there. call it Breast Cancers <laughs> Awareness Month, but maybe maybe we should. Exactly. Uh, uh, we probably should because there are several different types of breast cancer and there are several different subtypes of breast cancer. And it's very important to know and understand... Um, which which type, if you were diagnosed with one that you actually had, and understand the treatment that you're receiving, whether that treatment is meant for curative intent or whether the treatment is meant for palliation or control. Well, let's come back to that palliation and control in a minute, but let's figure out who can get this. So I'm, I'm assuming breast cancer, I, we typically associate this with women. Well, obviously, women can get it. Is that it or really not so much? Not so much. So um, it is not uncommon uh, to see men uh, with breast cancer. Uh, about 1% uh, of, of, of patients with breast cancer will be men. Uh, so it is, not sh- it is predominantly a, a, a disease. Um, it's seen in women, typically older women. Uh, the average age of uh, breast cancer diagnosis in the U.S. is about 67. Um, if you look at the, uh, the TV shows um, and in some of uh, the media, you wouldn't uh, obviously recognize that, but it mm. is really a disease of aging. Aging is actually the single most important risk factor for developing breast cancer. It's, it's interesting that you talk about that because as a woman over 40, mm-hmm. you know, it was, it was kind of known as a rite of passage. Once you hit 40, you have to have that annual mammogram. And so when that happened to me a couple of years ago, um, 
I, to my surprise, I have not, I've yet to have a mammogram. And I was sort of wondering, well, why is she not suggesting that I have one? What's going on with that? Uh, so it's it's very controversial. Uh -oh. um, <laughs> <laughs> I won't call out my doctor the, then. <laughs> the, um, the guidelines um, uh, for uh, receiving mammograms have changed uh, several times over the past decade. And there's several organizations that come up with these guidelines and all of them kind of have different cutoffs uh, when you should start screening and when you should stop. Some of them have none and they kind of all uh, conflict with each other. Um, so it's, I, I would say that um, really the decision to have a mammogram at, at any age should be uh, dependent on your risk factors, your individual risk factors, and it should be a personalized decision made between you and your and your physician. So this is just my skeptical side thinking here. Is this insurance driven though? I mean, is it that because there's all these controversial guidelines, is it insurance companies now saying, well, since it's not really 100% for sure you have to have it when you're 40, we're not gonna pay for it. So is that why it's not being recommended or is that sort of a mixed bag? I think it's a mixed bag. I think that is certainly a part of it. Um, and, and certainly the insurance companies follow uh, the guidelines and some of the data that are coming out about mammographic screening. I think one of the major issues is that um, the, the, the pivotal trials that kind of led to mammogram becoming a, a screening tool um, in, included a, a variety of different people. And so to be clear, none of them included women, older women above about 70 years old. So there are all, a lot of the data that we use to uh, to, to recommend uh, mammograms for older women are actually based on younger women and extrapolated to that population. That in just addition, doesn't make sense. I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not clinical in any way, yeah. but if we're going to start making predictions about a group of people that weren't even in the study, that doesn't wash. It, it doesn't always pan out, um, unfortunately. Um, however, I think there is um, some utility of applying that data to certain older women. And I think... What is the, the important take-home point is that these studies included people who are average, um, and nobody is a population. Everybody's an individual, and so the decision to have a mammogram or not should be individualized based on your risk of developing breast cancer and also your general health status um, and your, your personal wishes and goals and preferences. So some of the things we thought we knew about breast cancer and when people need to get checked are different. Now, before the show, we were talking about what used to be a very commonly promoted thing. I remember in college, they they had placards about this hung all over the campus, and it was about you know uh, promoting breast self-exam, trying to encourage people for early detection. And you said there's been some shift on that as well. So it's not just mammograms. There's, there's other forms of detection that have been shifted. That is correct. So the, I think a lot of the guidelines have, have now... Um, uh, moved away from recommending uh, uh, breast self-exams. Now that is, to be clear, different from a clinical breast exam that is performed by your physician. And I think the major issue is that there's a lack of data showing uh, a significant benefit um, from uh, self-breast exam. So that is a person performing their own breast exam. Um, now that is quite different if you you know, notice a lump in your breast and, and then um, go on to see your physician and have an exam. Uh, but performing routine self-exams really has not been shown to improve, at least convincingly improve outcomes um, for breast cancer. 
So we're sort of kind of removing the self-breast exams and we're sort of kind of removing mammograms for some younger women. So then how in the world would I know signs and symptoms wise if I have breast cancer? Uh, so the, the, the typical presentation for, for uh, breast cancer is either with a new uh, breast lump or a breast mass. Um, sometimes uh, that can be associated with some pain or discomfort. Uh, occasionally, there could be a discharge uh, from from the nipple. Um, there could also be a, a rash in that area or skin changes. Um, some women present with swellings at sites not in the breast but in the armpit, um, which would suggest that there was a lymph node that was involved by the breast cancer. Um, those are kind of the the common um, uh, presenting uh, uh, features of breast cancer. Um, it is not, um, by all means, the only way that breast cancer can present. Certainly, a number of women are, 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 are diagnosed with breast cancer based on uh, the findings on a routine mammogram. And so I would, I would encourage women to be vigilant by saying not to do breast self-exams doesn't mean that you shouldn't pay attention to something that arises. That voice is the voice of Dr. Trevor Jolly. He's with the UNC School of Medicine, assistant professor of the geriatric oncology program. And we're going to continue our conversation on breast cancer in just a bit. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care on News Radio 680 WPTF. News Radio 680 WPTF, you're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. Find more about them at transitionslifecare.org. I am Jason Kong, Nicole Bruno, and Cooper Linton here with me. And our guest this evening is Dr. Trevor Jolly. He's an assistant professor of geriatric at the Geriatric Oncology Program at the UNC School of Medicine. And we're talking all about breast cancer. And Cooper, if you had asked me uh, before the program uh, about you know whether breast cancer is many cancers or one uh, about mammograms and about self examinations. I would have gone over three. Uh, on, I would have on responding too, actually. About this. So I don't think that this is. Uh, you shouldn't feel bad about it, but I, that's kind of why we do this show. Is we need to address things that we either don't know or worse yet we think we know and therefore don't seek out information. And, and uh, sometimes I'm really happy that we're not recording during the break. Um, <laughs> but today I was kind of disappointed because Dr. Jolly was sharing some information uh, with us and I, and I was constantly learning as he was speaking. And I want to go back over some of the things that happened during the break that the listeners missed out but we're going to fill them in now. You know, you were talking about that the breast cancer rates, even for all the discussion about treatment, for all the walks, all the money raised, breast cancer is going up. But you said it's not necessarily a bad thing, and I, I, I need you to help explain that to me. So, yeah. So, um, the rate of really not only breast cancer, but all cancers are rising. And the, the silver lining here is that cancer is a disease that is very strongly associated with age. And so, the U.S. population for sure, is actually aging. The average life expectancy for someone living in the U.S. has gone up significantly compared to, say, about 50 or even 100 years ago. That's why this show's on. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> so um, in the years ahead, uh, given the uh, aging of the U.S. population and certainly with the, the new wave of uh, the baby boomers, the so-called silver tsunami, uh, we're actually going to see more older adults and hence more just numerically more uh, older adults with 
breast cancer because of the association of cancer and age. So earlier in the show, we touched on something, and then Jason kind of brought us in from the break with this. There's these different forms of breast cancer, mm-hmm. and you were indicating earlier that there really are major differences in the treatment and the prognosis associated with these cancers. In my mind, we talk about breast cancer, but I don't ever think to ask, what type of breast cancer? What does this mean? Can you can you go into a little more detail on that? I know I'm not a med student, and, and so I'm, you can probably can't go but so deep, but... Yeah, absolutely. So um, uh, breast cancer can be defined based on several factors. Um, so the more common one is the, uh, the the tissue or cell of origin of the cancer. And so um, across the board, probably the most common type of breast cancer is, is the so-called invasive ductal uh, cancer that uh, comes from these little ducts, uh, arises from these little ducts, uh, cells that line these little ducts um, in, in the breast. Um, the invasive lobular cancer, uh, likewise, lines the uh, arises from tissue lining the lobules of the breast. But there are other types of breast cancers that arise from different places um, in the breast. Uh, but from a practical standpoint and for treatment purposes, there are really only kind of three broad categories of breast cancer. So there is the hormone receptor positive, or, or as I as I, I put it in layman's term, the hormone sensitive breast uh, cancers. There's the HER2 overexpressing breast cancers, and then the so-called triple negative breast cancers that do not express any um, of the uh, traditional uh, receptors that we typically think about. And those three categories get treated quite differently um, in in clinical practice. Kind of the mainstay for the hormone-sensitive tumors are anti-hormonal therapies like uh, tamoxifen, I'm pretty sure you've probably heard Mm -hmm. of. Yep. and the HER2 uh, overexpressing tumors are treated uh, with a HER2-directed therapies uh, such as trastuzumab uh, and or pertuzumab. Um, and the triple negative breast cancers uh, typically get treated, depending on in the setting, uh, with, with uh, chemotherapies or traditional you know, cytotoxic chemotherapies. So I, I, you know, chemotherapy. So I think most people listening probably associate cancer with chemotherapy and radiation Correct. for all cancers. And, but it sounds to me like the first couple you mentioned and the most popular type, you didn't mention the word chemotherapy in that sentence. Has there been a change in the treatment of these diseases? There has been, uh, there's been an evolution in the way that we think of the, the hormone uh, receptor positive uh, breast cancers, I think, in general, in the oncology field, we, I think there has uh, been a move away from kind of the traditional cytotoxic chemotherapy to more targeted therapies or to therapies with less uh, side effects because and toxicities. Because does it not work or is it? It works, um, but, you know, it is, uh, 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 it is associated with quite a few side effects, you know, the nausea, the vomiting, um, which we are in 2017 are really good at, uh, and, at um, I would say preventing and controlling, but still um, it, it is it is associated with a lot of other side effects. So the hair loss is a is a is a big one for uh, for women. Um, it can cause fatigue, uh, tiredness, uh, tingling and numbness of the fingertips, what we call neuropathy. Um, it can cause lowering of your white blood cell count that can lead in some uh, settings to uh, infections. And so it's um, because of all of those side effects, I think there's been a general move away from chemotherapy to more targeted 
uh, therapies. I don't know that we're quite there yet, but I think that's kind of been the general um, evolution. So sometimes we you've we we kind of crassly call treating someone to death. You know, we we treat someone and we, we're treating their disease, but the burden of that treatment on their body is so profound that the patient really begins to question whether it was worth it. And I think this sounds like we're having it. We're we're hearing this discussion in many oncology circles, not not isolated to breast cancer. And some of those discussions also move into a, a review of palliative treatment. And could you talk for a second about the difference between curative treatment for breast cancer and palliative treatment for breast cancer? Because we throw that word palliative around like people actually know what it means. And most of the time they don't or they think it's associated with hospice when it very often is not. Right. You're, I think you're absolutely correct. And you hit um, kind of the, uh, the nail on the head. So... When we talk about breast cancer treatments, it's very clear, it's very important to, to clarify what the goal of treatment is. If we, we've mentioned chemotherapy, anti-hormonal therapies, and anti-HER2-directed therapies. Um, there are actually just really two broad categories for, for which we apply these treatments. Um, there are uh, women who have potentially curative breast cancers in which the cancer is not spread grossly to the point where we can see it outside of the breast and armpit area. Um, and then there are women who, in whom that has already happened where they've developed spots in their liver or the lungs or the bones and so forth. And then those women, typically with our technology, breast cancer, is, 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 it's, it's really challenging to eradicate in that setting. Um, there have been studies looking at whether people understand which of those that they're being treated for. And in general... Uh, there is, is there's data to suggest that there's limited understanding by patients for what they've been treating. In, in, in other words, if you ask a, some patients in general, what are you being treated for? The ones that are being treated, you know, with curative intent, some of them will say, no, it's, it's kind of just, I'm just getting palliative therapy and, and kind of vice versa. So I, in my practice, I am very clear, you know, upfront with the patient about what the goals of therapy are. And I think that's really one of the major factors. Um, it, for the patients with curative breast cancers, those patients receive what we call adjuvant therapy. So this is therapy that's given after surgery or radiation, or sometimes new adjuvant therapy before surgery and radiation in an attempt to eradicate any microscopic spots of breast cancer that would have spread outside of the area of the breast. We're speaking with Dr. Trevor Jolly. He's an assistant professor of the geriatric oncology program at the UNC School of Medicine. And we will continue our discussion on breast cancer right after this break. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care on News Radio 680 WPTF. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. Find more about them at transitionslifecare.org. I am Jason Kong, Nicole Bruno with Transitions Guiding Lights, Cooper Linton with Transitions Life Care, and our guest this evening is Dr. Trevor Jolly. He's an assistant professor with the Geriatric Oncology Program at the UNC School of Medicine, and we've been talking all things breast cancer here, Cooper, and uh, we, had, we had dived into the topic of... Uh, 
you know, uh, treatment that's curative and palliative. And, you know, I, I think that's that's still an important distinction for uh, for everyone to realize when, you know, not, it's not just with breast cancer, but with, you know, any sort of major uh, ailment, ailment or disease that understanding the difference between those two. I think you're absolutely right, Jason. And, and it's really one of the reasons that palliative medicine uh, is and has been for a while a recognized um, board specialty. Uh, geriatrics in the same manner. Uh, this is specialized medicine, but it begins to impact lots of other forms of treatment. There's so many things that can lead to palliative medicine, and there's a lot of confusion about the treatment itself. And then we talk about curative treatment, we talk about palliative treatment, and it gets very confusing and very muddy, and the patients themselves don't understand it. And candidly, there are physicians, in my opinion, that don't uh, understand it. And again, in our between segments a chat, uh, Dr. Jolly was talking about this some, and I really, again, want the, the listening audience to be able to hear what he was discussing uh, regarding that palliative curative debate or, or conflict, perceived conflict at times. Can, do you mind to speak to that again? Sure. So um, to, to, to explain it, I usually um, go to what I call the, the, the cookie analogy. And so if you think of... Um, the cancer in a woman's breast as a cookie. If you ever, ever dropped a cookie on the floor and a cookie kind of breaks apart, well, there are these big pieces, you know, that kind of stay in one place. And then after you kind of pick out the big pieces, which is kind of the surgery, there are kind of the crumbs left on the floor. I should say the surgery and the radiation is to kind of get rid of the big spots of cancer in the breast. Well, those crumbs could either stay in that same spot or they could kind of spread under the couch. And that's that analogy goes to show that microscopic spots of cancer can leave the area in the breast where it started and spread to other places like the lung, the liver, the bone. And they can sit there, and if no other treatment is given after you do your surgery and or radiation, then they can cause the cancer to, quote unquote, come back. And that's really the issue with cancer that is potentially curative is that we're really good at getting rid of the mass or the lump in the breast and even sometimes the lymph nodes in the armpit, but occasionally the cancer will come back in other places like the liver, the lung, and the bone. And it's not really that it's coming back. It's those crumbs that were not cleaned up. And those are the treatments that we usually use in the curative setting after surgery and radiation or sometimes even before to try to sterilize all of those microscopic spots so that the cancer doesn't come back. Now, unfortunately, once that happens... Once a spot pops up in the liver or the lung or the bone, unfortunately, with our current technology, it's really hard to completely get rid of cancer. And in that setting, the goal is to kind of control uh, the growth of the cancer and to prevent the onset of symptoms and to palliate the symptoms. And really, we have not been able to convincingly show uh, that we prolong life significantly uh, by using treatments. And so the goal really is palliation at that point. It's really to kind of uh, delay the onset of symptoms and give somebody the best quality of life possible. And I assume that part of that is balancing the disease impact on the person with the treatment impact on the person. Because if the focus is quality of life and someone is basically disabled through the side effects of treatment, we've greatly reduced their quality of life. And so that's that balance that you're trying to walk, I assume. Correct. It's a, it's a very thin line. And I think, unfortunately, there is a, there's a stigma attached to palliative care and, and hospice and, and 
and quite a lot of misinformation. Um, for example, I recently had a patient in the hospital uh, who had a very advanced cancer, and uh, we thought that um, she would be a, a reasonable candidate to go on palliative, uh, a palliative approach or with hospice because there were really no other surgical or medical interventions that, that uh, were felt to be helpful to her at that point. And there was a real resistance to go on, on uh, or to change the focus of treatment at that point because, again, of the stereotype and the stigma attached to hospice and palliative care. And one of the things she said to me, which I, I felt was quite remarkable, was that um, she said to me, you know, hospice and palliative care is kind of where you go to die. Um, and I felt that was unfortunate, and I used that as an opportunity um, because if you look at the data, uh, there have been several studies by Dr. Tamel and, and others that have showed that people who have early um, incorporation of palliative care into their treatment regimens, even those patients uh, who have uh, potentially treatable uh, cancers, actually do better and live longer than, uh, than people who don't have palliative care incorporated. And so I, I, I discussed that with that particular patient, and then she became amenable to it. And I think she will probably do quite well. So one of the things that I think we hear a lot in the community still is that a cancer diagnosis is a death sentence. But the reality of it is, based on my experience, is that there are a lot of people that are living chronically with cancer because the treatments have gotten so good. And so people, you know, when they receive a diagnosis, automatically think their whole world's going to stop. They stop working. They... And then all of a sudden, they realize, well, while maybe it can't be cured, I may be living another 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And then suddenly, you're actually working with colleagues who have cancer. And I think a lot of times, people don't know even how to interact with somebody with a diagnosis. How do you talk people through that when they realize, well, maybe I may not be able to be cured. I may live a very long time with this disease diagnosis. Right. That's a very interesting question, actually. There... Um there was a recent article that came out actually discussing the concept of, of, of potentially curing cancer, and it, it really was an interesting way that they def, this, def, described it. And so the point they made was that if you can keep or treat somebody's cancer long enough uh, that they succumb or, or pass from whatever would have taken their life eventually anyways, then you really have cured their cancer because their cancer didn't really impact their life expectancy. Um, so what you're saying is absolutely right. And depending on the type of cancer, for example, women with the hormone receptor positive tumors, some of them can live for many, many years with treatment. And so Cooper and I were talking about this earlier, um, where, you know, I tell my patients, if you come into the office and then you leave and you go home and your relative or your loved one or a neighbor asks you, you know, who is your oncologist? And you say, I don't remember, then I've done my job. Um, I, I, my goal is to make uh, your cancer uh, a minor annoyance. Um, I really want it to not take center stage in your life and, and for you to have the best quality of life and really to, to really not require my services uh, more frequently than once every few months. So we have a lot of caregivers listening to this show, and whether they're dealing with cancer for themselves, a spouse, or perhaps a family member, how would you recommend that caregivers become partners in, in the treatment plan with the patient? I think um, whenever a loved one gets diagnosed with cancer, it's, it's very hard um, uh, for loved ones to, to cope uh, with that sometimes and 
I would suggest and encourage all caregivers, um, and I've been on on that end of the spectrum with with my dad, uh, who himself was diagnosed with with cancer, uh, to really just support your loved one and to kind of put your needs as you know kind of secondary. I think uh, a lot of the times there is a tendency to kind of want the best for your loved one, but what your loved one wants really should take center stage. Very good. Uh, Dr. Trevor Jolly has been our guest, assistant professor with the geriatric oncology program, and wanted to uh, let everyone know that there is a geriatric oncology research symposium happening December 1st, and this is all about improving outcomes through research. Uh, This is open to the general public. You can register online by going to the UNC Lineberger website that's uncleinberger.org and again this is december 1st from 11 to 5 at the paul j rizzo center and uh, you can register online again that's uncleinberger.org to find more information there Uh, dr trevor jolly thank you so much for joining this evening it was a real pleasure having you on the show thank you it was a pleasure to be here thank you very much a quick break and back you're listening to aging matters care and comfort that surrounds you a service of transitions life care find more about them at transitionslifecare.org. This is News Radio 680 WPTF. News Radio 680 WPTF. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you. Hey, you kids, settle down over here. Cooper and Nicole acting up during the break. I'm Jason Kong, trying to keep this cast in line. Yes, I know, I know. I, I feel like a an old nerd dad trying to scream at his kids at the middle of dinner. I'll, I'll, no dessert for you two. She's on my side. That's right. Well, uh, let, we'll get back to more serious stuff here, I guess. And, you know, we, we had a show a few weeks ago all about Medicare and Cooper. The Medicare enrollment period is still open now. It's going through December 7th. It is still open. And, and one of the things that we talk about a lot on this show, and while we, you know, we try and have a little fun while we're doing it, the reality is it's a pretty serious thing, which is how's care paid for? It is one of the first questions we hear from caregivers, from patients. There's this anxiety and fear that they're not going to be able to afford things, that they don't have proper coverage for things. Um, it is a fear of the unknown. And so this is a great time of year to really address that anxiety and that fear head on. Uh, the fall of the year is when Medicare has open enrollment, to your point, Jason. We also have the ACA plans that are beginning their enrollment now. And uh, for the folks that are not used to ACA plans, more commonly known as Obamacare plans, but these are the health exchange plans that are available to folks that may not have coverage elsewhere. Um, At the same time, many employers, and there's a little bit of variation on when this happens, but many employers have open enrollment for their employer-based health care plans. And so if you work for somebody that has a plan or multiple plans, now's the time to actually take a look at the stuff that the Human Resources Department has or that your employer has for you and read it. It's, it, it is readable. <laughs> it, it, it's, they usually have a, a grid of benefits, and you can take a look and say, you know, what is covered, what is not covered? This can be as simple as uh, the ubiquitous Blue Cross Blue Shield plans in North Carolina 
or it could be as specific as a special needs Medicare Advantage plan that you're taking a look at. But now is the time to get your healthcare financial house in order. Take some time. It's easier to handle this stuff than it is to fret about it for the next 12 months. So take a look at those plans. Take a look at what's covered. And if you have choices to make, be able to make those choices in an informed manner because it's not always the cheapest plan is the best plan. What are your coverage needs? What are the, what's the care that you anticipate? And what can you afford to spend on that? And what can you afford to have uninsured? Some people intentionally say, I don't want coverage for everything, and they go for a plan that may cost less and cover less. There's nothing irrational about that. Just make sure you're going into it in a thoughtful manner that you've really looked at it, and it's not just, well, that was cheap, so I signed up for it. Well, and I think if you're a caregiver and you're trying to help your uh, older adult care receiver try to navigate some of these roads with these Medicare plans, it's really important to start looking at it now instead of like the last three days of open enrollment because the people you're going to be talking to on the phone are going to be stressed. There's going to be lines of calls. And so if you have questions, again, we're always beating the drum to this. Try to be proactive instead of reactive because when you're in a crisis and at the last minute, the 11th hour, you realize, oh, shoot, I haven't done this yet it's going to be a lot more stress-inducing for you and the one you're caring for. Well, less than half of people actually have the plans in place that they need when it comes time to look at health care issues and particularly the longer-term aging issues. And, mm-hmm. and for the longer-term aging issues, there's no way to separate the Medicare plans from that. You Almost everyone in this country is going to be covered under Medicare. It's not 100%, but it's very high percentage Medicare is covering that, and that means that you also have some choices to make uh, regarding the multitude of part Medicare Part B plans, Mm -hmm. uh, and there's also the supplemental insurance policies that then augment those Part B plans and also some A. Uh, And then in addition to that, there are the Medicare Advantage plans. And the prescription plans. And the prescription plans. So it's not one size fits all. Which to Van Braxton's point with SHIP, you know, he was saying a lot of people just continue the course. They feel like they go through this great process of deciding when they first get on Medicare and then they just leave it all ride. Mm -hmm. But the reality of it is these plans change every single year. What they cover and what they don't cover changes every single year. So if you're a listener out there and you feel like that Nicole and I are harping on this whole Medicare plan. (laughs) We are. We're harping (laughs) on this. Yes, we are. We are trying to get people to really be intentional, be thoughtful, be proactive, have their plans in place, know what's covered, make intelligent decisions for themselves or their loved ones. For those of you that want some help with Medicare open enrollment, there's a toll-free number that you can call in North Carolina. And you can get an online operator who can walk you through this, and there is no charge for calling. That number is 855-408-1212. Again, it's 855-408-1212. That's for assistance looking at the Medicare plans that are out there, whether that's Medicare Advantage, Part A, Part B, the Part D plans, the prescription ones that uh, Nicole just mentioned, you don't have to go it alone. There are folks that can walk you through this. You don't have to be the expert. North Carolina, your tax dollars have have got experts out there working for you. Let them help you. Yeah, and this is a uh, this is. I know you guys say oh, you're harping on it, but you guys have 
been in this game long enough that you've seen and heard some oh, real horror stories. Yeah. yeah. And, and I mean, you're talking about taking uh, hopefully just a few hours, maybe a few days to decide something mm-hmm. that if you don't or if you pick, make the wrong choice, you're talking about a financial catastrophe Huge on your hands. financial crises. And, you know, and typically older adults are living on a fixed income. Mm-hmm. And then when suddenly their medicines can't be covered the way that or they are, they're covered in some way, but not the way they need them to be covered. Folks start making decisions. Do I take my medicine or do I pay for my heat or do I eat? And then that just perpetuates the healthcare crisis. And then they're not taking their medicines. Maybe they're taking their blood pressure pill every other day to make that prescription stretch for two months because they can't afford the co-pays. And then you end up with people in the hospital. And then they're in the rehab centers and the assisted living communities. And perhaps that all could have been stopped had they had the proper coverage and would have been able to afford it. Well, realistically, there can be thousands of your personal dollars at oh, stake. Tens of thousands in some based, cases. <laughs> absolutely. Based on the decisions you make regarding these insurance plans. And, you know, be informed. Give it several hours of intense looking at so that when you walk into this, you're making a choice that you know why you made it, how you made it, and you're doing something that's acting in your interest. This is your chance to take control of as much as you can of your own health care financial destiny. And I think for those who are relying on the Obamacare as well, it just, you know, might come to a surprise if you typically enroll for that later on versus earlier. That's only six weeks this year. Norm, in years past, it's been 12. Ninety percent of people that are signing up for those plans in North Carolina, at least last year, received some form of subsidy. So if you're concerned that you can't pay for it, call uh, the uh, lines that have the um, uh, guidance on on how to uh, pick an Obamacare plan or an ACA plan. Take a look at the options. Look at what some of the subsidies may be. Uh, and also look at uh, getting help with the exemptions. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of advertisements right now, so it's easy to find out where to call. But there can also be assistance with getting exemptions so that you may not be caught up in the penalties in the event that you chose not to go on an ACA plan. So I think the message of the day is do not delay. Do not delay. <laughs> Copyright move forward. That. I think so. <laughs> move forward. Make a decision. Don't procrastinate it. This is the time of year you need to make these decisions. And uh, we encourage you to, again, call uh, the Medicare helpline in North Carolina, 855-408-1212, if you need help on those Medicare plans. Again, that number is 855 408 one two one two and again a, a wealth of information there uh, i think van said they've got about 13 people manning the phones he's even jumping on and, mm-hmm. and helping out as he well so. to do it. he says he it's one of the, his favorite parts of the job yeah and I, I i don't blame him he's a he's a very personable guy and i can yeah. see uh his willingness to want to help people and lead them in the right direction uh, i could definitely see him doing that a big thanks again to our guest this evening dr jolly if you missed any part of our discussion on breast cancer you can head on over to wptf.com head over to the aging matters section and you can listen to this entire program and every other program that we've done if you want to catch the medicaid program that we did with the aforementioned van braxton you can do that right now uh, you know why wait go listen to it listen to more do of, not delay that's right man we need to uh, trademark that and, and bill wptf for it no uh, someone's knocking on the door here i think i'm in trouble but we are out of time on behalf of cooper linton and nicole bruno i am jason conk thank you guys so much for listening and gals too i don't want to exclude anyone but thank you so much for listening we really appreciate it you guys make this program a lot of fun and we we really appreciate the 
listener engagement and interaction with you guys. Um, you, you make this a lot of fun for us. So uh, please join us again next week, Saturday at 7. We do this every week. It's Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care on News Radio 680 WPTF.